Hi, everyone. I'm John Pritchard, your host of Well Disguised. Thank you for listening. Let's say you're a fan of Aerosmith or Kiss or Cheap Trick. Well, you've come to the right place. Not just Well Disguised generally, but specifically this episode, because my guest today is Doug Broad. Now, Doug Broad is someone who has spent most of his life in the entertainment slash journalism business. For example, if you remember the show Oddville MTV back from 1997, he was one of the segment producers there. He's also lectured at NYU, but you're more likely to have seen him in the pages of Entertainment Weekly, where he was a senior editor for 11 years. He's also been the editor of TV Guide magazine. And most pertinently for at least this show, he spent over eight years as the editor-in-chief of Spin magazine. Then, in December of last year, 2020, he released his first book. It's called They Just Seem a Little Weird, and it's subtitled How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars Remade Rock and Roll. What you're about to hear is my conversation with Doug about his book. Yeah, we're going to get into it. Yes, you heard right. Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars. We'll talk about that. And yeah, that title, They Just Seem a Little Weird, not only is it a great title for a book about these bands, but obviously it's nicked from the classic Cheap Trick song, my favorite Cheap Trick song, Surrender. Anyway, as always, I don't like to waste your time. We'll get into the interview right after the music. I just want to encourage you from the outset to do two things. One, wherever you buy your books, buy this book, support reading, support books about rock and roll. And two, if this is your first time to my podcast, or if it's your 20th time and you still haven't subscribed, hey, remedy that if you don't mind. Get out there, subscribe, make sure you don't miss an episode. Hopefully that'll bring you a little pleasure, entertainment, knowledge, whatever, every two weeks, and it'll make me feel happier about my life. All right, my interview with Doug coming up next. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as promised, I am joined now by Doug Broad. Uh, he's the author of the fabulous book that I just finished a few days ago, and that I hope you will check out. They just seem a little weird. Doug, you've been a writer for most of your life, really, but this is the first time that you can see your name on the spine of a book. How does that feel? Was that important to you? Yeah. I mean, I actually had my name on the spine of a book many years ago. I edited an anthology for Spin Magazine when I was editor-in-chief. And it wasn't really, a, it wasn't a writing exercise for me. It was mostly just bringing together a bunch of uh, previously published stories. This book, however, is my first book that I've written. And yeah, it was a, it's a big thrill to see that. And, and especially to see it in a bookstore. I mean, I, I, I live up in Toronto, Canada, and we were under lockdown for four months since November. And we just got off lockdown around 
two and a half, three weeks ago. So that's when I first was able to see the book in a store, even though it'd been out for three months. So yeah, it's always a thrill to, to see your name on something like this and something that quite frankly, I, I spent two years of my life on. So it's nice to see the, the finished product. Well, we're going to get to the book in just a minute, but I want to start out with sort of an icebreaker, if you will, uh, if you will excuse that corporate term. <laughs> I'm going to give you three albums. I know you've heard all three of them. I want you to rate them for me. Aerosmith's Live Bootleg, Kiss Alive, and Cheap Trick at Budokan. Ooh, okay. God, I would say Kiss Alive, Cheap Trick at Budokan, and Aerosmith's Live Bootleg. Probably because Kiss Alive was the first of those three bands that I heard and that I fell in love with. And that album in particular was very meaningful for me. Cheap Tricks Budokan, an album that I love, which I don't think is their best, just because I know they had issues with the sound quality and you know the performances are great, but I think some of their studio albums are better. And Aerosmith Live Bootleg, I love the Aerosmith studio albums. The live album format is, is a little strange sometimes when there's too much audience noise and the playing's a little too sloppy. So for that, I would, I would rate that third among those three albums. Yeah, it definitely seems that some people love bootleg because it's raw. And if a guitar dropped, a guitar dropped. And some people hate bootleg or, or dislike it for the exact same reason, I think. There's a lot of interesting aspects to your book, and I'm going to talk about those, but I also think it's interesting for what it is not. For example, starting off, your book is not a memoir at all. This is not you talking about, I went to prom and this was playing, or I, you know, I, I saw Cheap Trick in New York in 19, whatever. Uh, it's not really about you, but it is clear, really, certainly by the time you read the acknowledgments at the end how important this music is to you. So you wrote almost 300 pages about it. Could you talk a little bit about that and why you picked these bands? Yeah, you know, I, I, I've been a huge fan of this style of music. I guess you can call it classic rock or 70s rock, you know, since I was a kid. And I always wanted to write a book that no one else had written, a book that brings together bands that maybe you wouldn't expect belong together. And, you know, since Kiss and Cheap Trick were, were two of my early favorite bands, and I knew that they had deep connections because they toured together in 77. And when I, I looked at the back of a Gene Simmons solo album from 1978, when Kiss were doing their solo albums, and I recognized that he had three guitar players on that record from other bands. He had Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. He had Joe Perry from Aerosmith and this guy named Richie Rano from a more obscure band called Stars. And I thought that would be a really cool launching point for a book about 70s rock and sort of exploring the whole idea of 70s rock and what these four bands brought to it. Because one of my theses in the book is that all four of these bands, while they were very much interrelated through management, production, business ties. They also were four bands that had very specific theatrical stage shows and, and they brought a lot of energy and a lot of flamboyance to the concert stage. 
in, in a period when, you know, a lot of the music out there and a lot of the, the hard rock bands didn't really have much of a show. They went up and they, they played. And a lot of the music back then was also very serious. I mean, bands like Deep Purple and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, there wasn't a lot of humor there. But I, I felt that these four bands brought a lot of humor to the music and to the performance. So that's kind of how they developed as sort of the subjects of the book. And I wasn't interested in writing a memoir because, I mean, my life's kind of boring anyway. So <laughs> I, I was more interested in actually doing the, doing the work and doing the interviews and, and getting the stories behind these bands. You talk also about your influences. And another thing your book is not, apparently, is inspired by Hammer of the Gods or The Dirt by Motley Crue. Was it a conscious decision on your part? I mean, you have to talk about Tyler Perry and the drug use and you have to talk, well, maybe you don't have to, but like Gene Simmons and the Polaroids, but was it a conscious decision on your part to kind of leave the debauchery and that sort of stuff behind? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I felt like that stuff had been written so much before and those are old stories. And to me, that's not the most interesting stuff. I mean, to, to me, the interesting stuff is the actual collaborations between these bands. I mean, when during my research, I discovered that one point in the early 80s, Gene Simmons, who had become friendly with Cheap Trick, was sending them songs to record, you know, songs that he had demoed and said, said to Cheap Trick, this will put you back on the radio. And of course, they never recorded these songs. And when you hear these songs in their demo form on YouTube, you have to think like, what was Gene thinking? These songs sound nothing like Cheap Trick songs and why would they ever record them? So to me, that was the interesting stuff. The, 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 more, the more tawdry, lurid sex and drug stuff. I, you know, I, I, I love reading about that. I just didn't want to write about it. It's also fair to say, I think, and this is maybe kind of getting back to the core of what the book's about. It's not really a chronology of so-and-so went to the record plant and so-and-so brought the riff to Sweet Emotion or whatever. You wrote about certain things and certain things you just didn't do. Why did you pick to write about the things that you actually did? Yeah, that, that was a really conscious decision. I, I didn't want to get into a very kind of particular, this happened, then this happened, then that happened. I mean, these these bands, for the most part, I mean, especially Kiss and Aerosmith, they've had tons of books written about them. They've also written tons of books. I mean, right. between, you know, three members of Aerosmith have their own books out. There was the oral history Walk This Way. All four original members of Kiss have their books out. There was an oral history about their early days that came out that was fantastic. So I didn't really need to write a lot about that specific stuff again. I was more interested in finding the interconnections and the intersections among these bands. So when you read the book, I kind of jump from band to band, you know, with, with each chapter. I'll go from a Cheap Trick chapter to an Aerosmith chapter to a Stars chapter to a Kiss chapter. And that to me was the interesting way to present the material because you can, you can find transitions uh, between the bands that, that felt natural and organic. And to get too much into to the particulars, I mean, that, kind of, that stuff kind of bores me anyway. So I didn't want to write about it. I, I wanted to, to write about how these artists intersected. 
And that, that was, that was my goal. Yeah. I, and that leads me into my next question, which is one I'm confident you've had to answer more than once. And it was actually the first question when I bought the book on Amazon, it was the very first question that was in my mind, Aerosmith, obviously kiss probably one of the three or four most influential bands of all time. Cheap Trick, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, everybody's favorite opening band or everybody's third favorite band, whatever they say about, about Cheap Trick. And then instead of Alice Cooper or Van Halen or Bob Seger or ZZ Top or Leonard Skinner or Ted Nugent or whoever, New York Dolls, you wrote about stars. Why did you include stars with the others? They were too good a band to pass up. Just, just, just in terms of how they intersected with these three other bands. I mean, bands that you mentioned, especially bands like Ted Nugent, um, even like Blue Oyster Cult or ZZ Top, they all have very deep connections with these three other bands. But Stars went even deeper because Stars had two albums produced by Jack Douglas, who produced two Cheap Trick albums and also produced all of the great Aerosmith records. They had the same manager as Kiss, this guy Bill O'Coyne. They opened for Aerosmith numerous times on tour. So they, it was hard to pass up. And, and also, like I said earlier, Richie Rano, the guitarist, also played on Gene Simmons' solo album with the two other guitarists. So it, it seemed too, too natural and, and too organic. But at the same time, you know, I, I recognize that they're not a band on the same commercial level or even artistic level, it could be argued, as the other three bands. But in a way, one of the stories I wanted to tell was about this certain level of band during that era, this in the 70s, this kind of B and C level band that always had the same opportunities as the bigger bands. I mean, stars were on Capitol Records for four albums. They had these big tours. Um, they had Kiss's management, but they didn't make it. And I wanted to, I wanted them to sort of represent that level of band that never made it, and tried to explore why. I mean, there were bands like Angel and Legs Diamond and Montrose and and so many other bands that you'd find in Head East. All these and Y and T. All these bands you'll find in you know in the used bins at your local record store and and say, hmm, I kind of I heard of them. Why, never, why didn't they ever get big? And that's kind of what I wanted to answer with, with the stars question. Was there any pushback from like did the agent or the, the, the book company or anything like that? Like, oh, we could sell more books in Georgia and Mississippi if you read about Skinner too, or something like that. Was there any of that? No, and in fact, and this, this, is, this is what really surprised me when, when I, I found an agent for the book who, who really loved it. And he sold it to an editor and and my editor one of the first things he said was to him stars was one of the attractions of the book because he had never heard of them and he wanted to see how they tied in and he wanted to see that question answered why did this kind of band not make it so no in fact it was kind of the opposite of pushback it was like oh give me more (laughs) well that's great because i'll be honest with you hear me the host of a rock podcast such a such an expert but i'd heard of stars but i could not consciously remember any of their songs so i've checked them out over the past few weeks and i do think it's an interesting question because they were a really good band yeah it's funny because you know like you i had never heard of stars until around 2000 and 
2005, I believe, I, I was uh, the editor-in-chief of Spin Magazine, and we received in the mail um, promo uh, CDs of the first four Stars albums. I had heard of them in the 70s, but I had never heard them. I actually never heard their music until 2005, and that's when I really kind of fell in love with them. I mean, I thought that it, it was like, who is this band that I've that I've missed all my life. I had seen their ads in magazines in the 70s. I kind of knew they had a tenuous connection with Kiss. And then it wasn't until I actually heard the records and realized that Richie Rano played on the Gene solo album, that's when I was like, oh, you know, this, this, there's an interesting story here that no one's told. Getting back to kind of what your book was about, not only is it the, this, uh, the, the word I used or thought about when reading it was kind of a holistic view of of the rock scene of, of the late 70s and going into the 80s, because you don't just talk, you do talk a lot about the bands, obviously, I don't want to, to mislead anybody, but you also have like a chapter on the formation of AOR radio and the importance of promoters. And there's a chapter on, I think, the rock magazines of the era. And you have a pretty long part of a chapter on the KISS conventions and the, the kind of story there. How important was stuff like that to you to mix in with the stuff about the bands? That, that's a great question. That was really important because I wanted to put all this stuff in context. I mean, someone reading a book like this would see these bands and think that they, I mean, could, could see these bands and think they exist in some kind of bubble or some vacuum. But I think, especially when I was telling the story of stars, I needed to put into context what they were up against. And what they were up against is, you know, AOR radio, which was heavily formatted to highlight really only particular certain bands. And they were not one of them. And they never really got a fair shake in that arena. Um, I also get into like, you know, concert booking and how much these bands were making on tour and how the touring worked and how bands got onto these bills to tour with other bands and the kind of horse trading that was going on among the managers. So, and then also I, I, I talk a lot about, um, about the magazines of the period, Cream and, and Circus and Rolling Stone. And, and, and I talked to a lot of the writers back then who were covering these bands. Yeah, I mean, I did want to paint a, a bigger picture and, and have a bigger canvas to tell this story since it, since there were a lot of factors that actually determined how these bands were going to go. That stuff is probably the best part of the book to me. That's, that was my favorite part, because to, to hear about some of those other things that really painted the whole picture. You did over, I think, 130 interviews for the book. Yes. Was there somebody you wanted to talk to that you just couldn't get to talk to, or did you talk to everybody you wanted to? No, I didn't talk to everyone, everyone I wanted, unfortunately. I mean... I, I, I only got around half the band members that I had hoped to get. Aerosmith declined to participate at all in the book, so I didn't get any fresh quotes from those guys. I got uh, Rick Nielsen and Bunny Carlos from Cheap Trick. I got all the guys in Stars, and I got Paul Stanley from Kiss. And I actually had some, I, I couldn't get Gene Simmons for the book, but I actually had some outtakes from an in interview I did more than a decade ago that were germane to the topic. So I was able to use those. But no, I mean, I, I was bummed that I couldn't get some of the band members. However, since there's so much printed material about these guys already, I was able to 
bring together quotes from some of the band members I couldn't get and you know weave them into the narrative. The one person outside of the bands I was bummed did not want mm -hmm. to participate was the producer Jack Douglas, who was involved in three of these bands producing their records. And he also declined to be interviewed for the for the book. And I, I suspect it was because I think he has his own book coming and perhaps wanted to save his stories. But here's a funny story. So um, I posted an excerpt from the book that was published online to one of the, to, to the Stars fan site on Facebook. And Jack Douglas chimed in on Facebook saying, I'm reading this book and uh, I, 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 I wish I could, I wish I would have talked to this guy or something. I, 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 I wish he would have interviewed me. And then I wrote underneath, I made numerous attempts to interview you, Jack, but you declined. So <laughs> what, what am I going to do? You can't win. <laughs> well, and it seemed like I'm not fishing for dirt, even though some of my questions <laughs> may sound like this, but it sounds like some people have some issues with Jack Douglas and his, uh, his recollection of the truth. Um, in, in the book, yeah. I mean, there's no question that both uh, Bunny Carlos and Ken Adamani, you know, Bunny was the, the, the drummer of Cheap Trick, the, the original drummer, and um, Ken Adamani was their original manager who was there for pretty much their, the entire way up until the, the early, early mid-90s. Yeah, and they, they both have issues with the way Jack Douglas has kind of rejiggered the or reestablish the truth of his discovering the band in a bowling alley in Wisconsin. And, and I, I think Jack has embellished his role um, at the beginning. And, and I think Ken and, and Bunny wanted to set the record straight. It seems from reading the acknowledgments and like how you've just talked about that uh, Paul Stanley was very generous with you in his time. And I have kind of a love-hate relationship with KISS. I tend to love KISS when I'm listening to their music. I tend to hate KISS when KISS fans are talking to me about KISS or the KISS members themselves are talking about KISS. I don't think that Paul and Gene in particular are always likable when it comes to interviews, but actually knowing them in the way that you know them, and I, you know, I know that that's maybe even still somewhat of a superficial level, but it seems like, again, Paul was really good to you. Do you like them better getting to talk to them, getting to know them? No, no question. I mean, I, I can't say I, I've ever met either of them. It was only phone calls for, for both. But I'll tell you this. I mean, when, when I interviewed Gene for a Spin magazine almost a little more than 10 years ago, I interviewed him because I was doing, we were doing a special issue of the magazine, basically debunking rock and roll myths. And one of the myths that I wanted to debunk was that Gene Simmons was an asshole. Because <laughs> uh, that was the title of his current record, his, his current solo record. And I was trying to debunk it because it was also when he had his reality show, Simmons, Gene Simmons' Family Jewels on TV. And it the show depicted him as a really nice guy and a really good father. And that's what I wanted to stress in this interview. And when he got on the phone, he was like, oh, you want to write this piece about how Gene Simmons is an asshole? And I'm like, no, no, just the opposite. He proceeded to be 
a very charming interview, very cranky. He's, he still has a big ax to grind he, he, about file sharing. He thinks Napster was the worst thing to ever to happen to music, and he still says it. And the whole rock and roll is dead. I mean, he was pushing that on me 10 years ago. So yeah, I mean, he's a charming guy to talk to. And on the other hand, um, well, not on the other hand, but Paul Stanley similarly is really charming as well, but in, in a much more thoughtful, less ironic or sarcastic way. I mean, Paul is very straightforward, very diplomatic. In fact, he, at times he seemed like he was bending over backwards to be diplomatic when talking about the other bands. He, I mean, he loves Cheap Trick, but he, he does have some issues with Aerosmith and even bigger issues with Stars. But he was never less than never less than forthcoming with me and and he just he sounds like a very decent guy i read your the interview you did about this book in spin which is obviously your old stomping grounds mm -hmm. so i i know the answer to this question but i want to ask it anyway which of these bands is your personal favorite a uh, cheap trick there's no question i mean i've, I've seen them probably 50 51 times Whenever I get a chance to, I will see them in concert. And I just, I just love their music. I mean, to me, they were the, the epitome of just that era, that set, late 70s rock. But they were so different. They, they, they weren't quite new wave. They weren't quite heavy metal. They weren't quite hard rock. They were just their own thing. And nobody really sounded like them or looked like them. So that's what really appealed to me about them. And I just think that Rick Nielsen is just an amazing songwriter. And, and one thing that when I interviewed him that he kind of stressed to me, it's like he never wanted to be thought of as this guitar hero, which a lot of people have pegged him as. He's like, no, I, I, I never wanted to be one of those guys who can play a thousand notes a minute. I just wanted to write good songs. So he was always a songwriter who played guitar to get his music across. Um, he was never trying to be this, you know, Steve Vai or Joe Satriani or Ingve Malmsteen type of shredder. One thing all three of those bands have in common, and I, I, I confess I'm forgetting here, maybe Stars does too, but they all have members who left and came back. Obviously, Ace and Peter leaving and coming back, huge commercial success. And it's hard to believe that Aerosmith would have been as big had Joe Perry and Brad Whitford, particularly Perry, not come back after a few years gone. How do you compare Tom Peterson to those other two when the way he left Cheap Trick and obviously came back? That's that's a really great question. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that that was interesting about these bands is that at least with regard to um, Aerosmith, Kiss and Cheap Trick, they had substantial members leave the bands between the years of 70, 1979 and 1980. So that was something that they all had in common. Star Stars had actually had a little bit of turnover after their third record. They lost both their bass player and their uh, one of their guitarists. But in, in the case of Tom Peterson, I mean, he left when the band was at its height. And, and I think that his leaving the band in 1980 could be one of the, could, could be considered one of the contributing factors of why the band had a rough time throughout the 80s until he came back. You know, Kiss were able to have a real career after 
both Peter and Ace left, I mean, during the 80s, they had a lot of big hits. They were not as big as they once were, but they had a lot of big hits with, you know, with Eric Singer and, 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 um, and Bruce Kulick and Eric Carr. And Aerosmith kind of eked out a little bit of business with, uh, with the replacements for uh, Joe Perry, but it wasn't until he returned to the band that they kind of got their second wind and after done with mirrors they did permanent vacation and you know that kind of put them back over the top but no tom tom peterson leaving cheap trick was a was a real substantial blow to them that's an interesting point that you made that i think kiss and aerosmith were certainly on the downside when when their guys left but peterson did leave as, as you said sort of when cheap trick was at its peak I find it hard to believe, although I'm open-minded, that there was that there was any sort of conspiracy against stars, but tongue-in-cheek or whatever. To what degree do you chalk up? And maybe you've already talked about it a little bit luck versus talent when how all four bands shook out. That's that's a really good question. I mean, with regard to stars, you know, the band members themselves believe there maybe not conspiracy conspiracy is kind of a strong word but they they thought there might have been a little bit of sabotage on the part of their manager bill o'coin and even on the part of capital records which they told me failed to promote them the right way the funny thing about stars is that that they were already seasoned performers when they got signed to capital i mean two of the guys were in the original version of Looking Glass, who had that single Brandy, You're a Fine Girl. And it turned out that over the years, one of the original guitarists for Stars and the, the singer for Stars also were in the last version of Looking Glass after the lead singer, Elliot Lurie, had left the band. And they morphed into Stars with the addition of Richie Rano, who was in this band called Stories that had a, a hit single with Brother Louie, which became the, the Louie show theme song. So they were already established musicians who had played you know, on major label releases, but when they got signed to, to Capitol and they were stars, they couldn't really talk about the fact that they were these, they, they, would, they, they were these past soft rockers. They, they, they couldn't give up the fact that they had this past as kind of these wimp rockers. So, you know, they were thrust into these situations where they were opening for bands like Peter Frampton and ZZ Top um, immediately, right when, even before they had a record out, they were, they were, they were being pushed by Bill O'Coin, Kiss's manager, to open for these big bands. So they never had a grassroots following and they never played the bar band, they never played the bar circuit, they never played divey clubs. So they had that kind of going against them. They didn't, they didn't build up this grassroots following. So there was a little bit of suspicion probably being cast upon them by music listeners, by bookers, by agents. It's like, well, who are these guys? Um, and they kind of came out of nowhere because you didn't hear about them until they got signed. So that was one hurdle that they had. And then there's another story that I get into in the book where one of the members of stars actually got into a physical altercation with their manager at a video shoot and you know a couple of the guys in the band think that that was a turning point the manager at that point wanted to sabotage them 
But, you know, in my interviews with other people, with, with people who are unconnected to that, in fact, one manager, one present day manager told me there's no way a manager would, would sabotage his own band. It's, almost, it's too much work. Why would you do that? So, I mean, there, there, are, there are theories that some of the band members have. And there's just these outside forces that that just play their part, and you know, it it just goes it goes this way or it goes that way, and for them it went the other way. You've spoken some about managers in, in that response, and that leads me to a little bit of a fun question I have for you. You're a father. I am. Hi, hypothetically, let's say your child was on the precipice of stardom, and you could influence your child into hiring any one of these managers in their prime. Bill Coyne, Doc McGee, the Leber Krebs organization, Tim Collins, and I'll throw in just for fun, Gene Simmons. Who do you influence your child to, wow. to represent I, you know them? You know what? That's, that's, a, that's an interesting question because I've learned so much about these personalities when I researched the book, I would say though, gosh, I would probably say Tim Collins, who was the manager of Aerosmith when they got their second wind. He was originally the manager of the Joe Perry project. And when Joe re-entered the Aerosmith fold, he brought Tim along and said, Tim's gotta manage us in order for me to join again. And, you know, he just basically built them back up into this functioning machine, helped them get rid of their drug habits and, you know, clean them up, put them with the right songwriters and the right producers and, you know, made them a huge band. I mean, all these other guys have their strengths, obviously, uh, but they also come with some, some of them come with unsavory backgrounds or, or unsavory, unsavory bits of business that have been unresolved. So, um, although I have to say out of all these people I spoke to for the book, uh, Ken Adamani, who was Cheap Trick's original manager, was incredibly generous with his time with me. And he gave me such, such incredible follow-up material via email and follow-up interviews. And he was, he was one of my major sources for the book. And he was a genuinely nice fellow. I know the band have issues with him because of how things transpired through their career. But um, as an interview subject and as just a, a human being, he seemed like a really nice guy to me. True or false? Steven Tyler is the most talented artist in these four bands. And if your answer is false, who do you think is the most talented? Wow. Well, God, I would say he's one of the most talented just in terms of what he can do. I mean, he's he started off as a drummer. A lot of his relationship with Joey Kramer, Aerosmith's drummer, has been, you know, a lot of headbutting because sometimes Steven feels he can do better than Joey can. In fact, Bunny Carlos. Bunny Carlos told me that he was once backstage at a Aerosmith performance and he saw that Steve and, and, and Joey were kind of not getting along and Steven liked to boss him around. So yeah, I mean, he's incredibly talented. God, I would say, but as a songwriter, I would say that 
Rick Nielsen is probably the most talented among all of these guys. And without a doubt, Robin Zander is the best singer of all, of all four bands. And, and to my mind, one of the best singers in, in, ever in rock and roll. So Cheap Trick have the edge. <laughs> I wanna close things up with a couple questions about your history at Spin, if I could. I've read a lot of Chuck Klosterman over the years and Chuck is kind of, I don't wanna put words in his mouth or misquoting, but he kind of talked about how he, when he got to Spin, he was the quote metal guy. And here you have an editor at Spin, who's obviously just written this book about all these bands. Is Kiss and Aerosmith and Cheap Trick, is that more popular in the, the halls of Spin Magazine than one might be thought to? You're shaking your head. No, I'm guessing not. No, it wasn't. <laughs> when, I was, when I was at Spin, I mean, Chuck had been there for a couple of years when I started. I worked a lot with Chuck. He's a wonderful guy, dear friend of mine. And yeah, I mean... There was, there was a little bit among the staff, there was a little bit of appreciation for that kind of music, but for the most part, it was, it was Chuck and I who were you know, flying the flag for that stuff. Like I said, when I actually took over Spin, I believe Chuck had, Chuck had left by that time. I, you know, I, I put Gene Simmons in the magazine. I was putting in bands like The Darkness, that UK hard rock band into the magazine. Uh, you know, When I first started there, it was very the new revolution in rock and roll centric. So there was a lot of strokes and white stripes and Jane's addiction and, you know, uh, the hives and the yeah, yeah, yeahs and the killers. So it was a lot of those early 2000 rock revival bands. Um, and there wasn't, a, there wasn't so much looking back at the forebears. So, yeah. So, so I, I would say that Chuck and I were in kind of the small minority. When you talk to people who are music critics or the type of people who write, who write for Rolling Stone or, or Spin or what have you, I do think there's a sense that is often given off that, you know, one minute they're listening to whatever the hip indie band with no hope of commercial success is, you know, maybe saw him down and whatever, some tiny club. And then it's Taylor Swift. And then it's this rap group. And th there's this real, we kind of like everything. And I feel like most normal people aren't like that. We, we, we have more lanes that we stay in. Do the rest of us listen to music wrong? I mean, do, should we listen to all these other things or what? You know, I think... It all comes down to to each his own. I, I know what you're saying. I, I know that it's hard, at, at least for me, I, I gravitate toward writers who kind of get what I get, who understand what I understand and what I like about music. And, you know, I know people have very broad tastes. Some people do. Some people have very, you know, regimented tastes. It's it's kind of hard today to pick out at least rock critics or journalists who who could share your appreciation for at least this kind of music for for you know for seventies rock. You know, I I was never one of those critics or writers who boasted of 
boasted of being so open-minded that I could have Britney Spears and and uh, Kelly Clarkson and you know what have you in my in my musical worldview. I, it just never interested me. I mean, I could maybe listen to some of that music and think, oh, that's a good song, but it, ne it, it the style never you know, never resonated with me. So some people have just more, you know, bigger, a, a bigger palette that they, they want to go to. I, I'm happy in my limited worldview of music. You give me 70s hard rock, punk, post-punk, alternative rock, and I'm, I'm kind of happy. Throw in a little disco and soul and there you go. Very good. Um, Doug, I think my audience is smart enough to know they can go to their local independent bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever, to pick up your book. Do you have anything else that you're working on? Is there something else that may be coming down the pipe? Working on some book ideas that uh, hopefully at least one will come to fruition uh, fairly soon. I also have an essay that's going to be published in a book called Go Further. It's something like More Literary Appreciations of Power Pop. It's a sequel to a book that came out a few years ago about power pop. And I wrote about arena bands, like power pop bands that played arenas. It's a very limited, uh, <laughs> small, lane, narrow lane approach to, uh, to, to, to rock. And I was very happy to write it. And uh, I think it came out okay. And that's something to look forward to. Well, thank you again so much for coming. I hope my audience will look at that. Also, again, the book is called They Just Seem a Little Weird from the classic Cheap Trick album, or, or classic Cheap Trick song, Surrender. Uh, it was fantastic reading experience, and it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming aboard. Same here. My pleasure. All right, everyone. That was my interview with Doug Broad. I hope it came across in the conversation that we had and what you heard, but I thoroughly enjoyed that. I could have talked to Doug for another couple hours. I'd love to buy him a cup of coffee or a drink of his choice and keep chatting, but if you enjoyed it, do two things for me. One, go buy the book, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever. Again, it's called They Just Seem a Little Weird. The second thing I'd ask you to do, especially if this is your first time checking out Well Disguised, make sure you subscribe, make sure you like it, rate it, whatever, but really make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and go back and check out the archives. Got more than 20 episodes at this point, things you might enjoy, and again, if it is your first time here, thanks for checking me out. All right, I'm going to let you get back to enjoying the rest of your life, but take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and I'll talk at you soon.